Hey friends, Tyler here with a special announcement for pastors and ministry leaders. On May 7th and 8th, Bridgetown Church will be hosting a pastor's gathering for ministry leaders and other pastors uh, around the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a postmodern context. We're going to tackle themes like listening prayer and prophetic ministry, creating a culture of response and encounter. And we want to do so among like-minded leaders ministering in a similar context who are going after the same things. So if that's you and that sounds interesting to you, Come and join us on May 7th and 8th. Registration is live right now, and you can find more information at, at the website that is dedicated to this, bridgetown.church training. Hope to see you in May. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Segundo Timoteo, capítulo 3, versículo 16 y 17. Toda la escritura es inspirada por Dios y útil para enseñar, para reprender, para corregir y para instruir en la justicia, a fin de que el siervo de Dios esté enteramente capacitado para toda buena obra. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Martin Luther gets all of the uh, very well-deserved press for leading the Protestant Reformation, a Reformation movement that was based entirely around getting the Bible from the clutch of the priests into the hands of common, everyday people. But some 133 years before Luther, John Wycliffe was in Oxford translating the Bible from Latin into English, insisting on widespread access to God's written word and the priesthood of all believers. And for that, Wycliffe was excommunicated by the church of his time as a heretic. His corpse was burned along with his life's work, scattered together in the River Swift in every possible way. Wycliffe and his life's work were wiped from history. But of course, his legacy lived on in his contemporaries, and the revolutionaries that, uh, or sorry, the revolution that he gave his life to wasn't burned and scattered along with his body, but it rolled forth until Luther famously nailed it to the church door in the form of 95 theses. And today, if you were to walk across the central lobby of London's Houses of Parliament, you would find Psalm 127 inscribed right there on the floor. The, way, the late Queen Elizabeth II, when crowned in 1953, was presented with a Bible alongside the declaration, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that the world affords. Here is wisdom, this is the royal law, and these are the lively oracles of God. The very seats of power that were once blessing the burning of Wycliffe's body and work are now inscribing the subject of Wycliffe's work in the tile on their office floor and declaring it as the greatest, or I'm sorry, the most powerful thing this world affords. Six centuries after Wycliffe paid an astounding prize to put scripture into the hands of ordinary everyday people, the YouVersion Bible app alone uh, has 2,946 versions of the Bible available in 1,955 languages, all of it free of charge to anyone who might want to access it. Wycliffe was disgraced 
but his legacy completely reshaped not only his own nation, but the entire world's access to the Bible. What a radical shift. Perhaps there's been an equally radical shift between 1953 and 2023. Because in the same nations and societies where 70 years ago the Bible was revered publicly as the oracles of God, that same Bible is widely mocked, generally distrusted, and mostly ignored. In the U.S., every president is sworn into office by laying a hand on the Bible. In our justice system, every witness who appears in every trial sworn in by laying a hand on the Bible. That's the very Bible that Wycliffe fought so hard to get into our hands, and yet that's a formality at best, or an empty trope at very worst. Statistics show us that 78% of Americans own a printed copy of the Bible, but only 9% read it with any regularity. There has never been a time in history when the Bible was so widely available and so little read as it is today in the Western world. George Gallup, the famous pollster, he called the Bible the best-selling, least-read book in America. So how do we get here? From revolutionaries and public executions, from a powerless few who saw the words that are on these pages as so powerful, they paid the ultimate price to get them into our hands, and to a powerful majority who saw the words on these pages as so potent, they were willing to carry out unthinkable human evil to keep them from getting into your hands and mine. How do we get there from there to the best-selling least read book? Well, I would suggest that the most comprehensive and straightforward answer to that question comes down to what and how. What is the Bible and how do I read it? Because anyone who's ever flipped to page one and started reading will quickly discover that this book doesn't just flow like any other epic. Uh, there's bits that will awaken and enliven you, but there's others that might offend or even disgust you. And there's a whole lot that'll just leave you confused and scratching your head. So what is the Bible and how do I read it? We are uh, in the second week of a teaching series in practice titled Hearing God, Listening to the Still Small Voice of the Holy Spirit. Bethany got us started last week with Jesus as the living word, and in the weeks to come, we're gonna talk about hearing the voice of God as that personal, deep inner knowing of a whisper to the soul, as the shared gift of prophecy within the church, hearing the voice of God through the creation that surrounds all of us, but first, the voice of God through the written word, the Bible. And let's just be honest, if a friend were to say to you, hey, come with me to this church event, it's going to be amazing. I've been going uh, weekly and I am absolutely floored. Come with me, try it just this once. I guarantee you, you're going to hear the voice of God. And then we arrive, not to a dimly lit, smoky sanctuary with charismatic leaders holding microphones, but to a Bible study you'd be profoundly disappointed and feel misled, right? We don't often associate the Bible with the voice of God, and that's a huge mistake, because the Bible is the training ground for hearing God's voice. If we can learn to, to recognize God's voice in the scripture, we can begin to recognize God's voice everywhere else, but it all starts and comes back to right here. 
So over this Sunday and next, we are going to get at the biblical what and how question, ending in a very practical invitation to live in God's story until it becomes the story that we live out. And as a general disclaimer, before we go any further, this is not a two-week teaching series on the Bible in general. Some of you may have questions related to why. Like, why trust the Bible at all? Why read it differently than I read any other book? Why believe it to be God-inspired? Why did these ancient scrolls make the cut of our modern Bibles and others didn't? Those are really good questions that deserve good, thoughtful responses. And for that, I would commend you to the teaching series that we did at this church in 2016 titled, It Is Written, or the teaching series we did in 2020 entitled Scripture, both of which are available on our website and through our podcast feed right now. I'd also commend you to The Bible Project, which has done really excellent work on all of those why questions. It's based right here in Portland and maintains a really tight-knit friendship with our church. The why questions are important ones. They're just outside the purview of this particular teaching series, which is aimed practically at increasingly tuning my ear to God's voice in my everyday life. So how do I hear the voice of God through the scripture? That's next week. First, what? What am I holding when I'm holding the Bible? That's our one question today. You're holding a window, a library, a meal, a biography, and a person. And I'd love if we took those one at a time. So first, a window. Imagine a group of men and women in a huge warehouse. They were born in this warehouse, they grew up in it, and they've got everything they need within it for their needs and their comfort. This warehouse has no exits or entrances, but there are windows. But no one ever even bothers to look out these windows because everything they need exists in their little world. But then one day, one of the children drags a step stool up under one of the windows, climbs up on it, and wipes the grime off the warehouse window and peers out to see a whole other world outside. People on streets and sidewalks walking around, living a completely different life than the one they've been living inside. And that child starts to make enough commotion that a whole group of children gather around the window and begin looking out. And then someone on the world outside stops and looks up and points at something and a crowd begins to gather around this person and they're all looking up at something so the children instinctively look up but they just see the roof of their warehouse. Now why would someone stop for no reason at all to look up at nothing at all? But of course the person outside isn't looking up at nothing at all, they're looking at a flock of geese in flight or at an airplane crossing above or a shooting star. You see outside of the warehouse people look up to see the expanse of the heavens above but within the warehouse they look up only to see the shelter of their own making. What would happen though? If one day, instead of just looking out the window, one of these kids had the courage to elbow out the glass and to climb out, they would discover the expanse of the heavens above and this broader world outside of the world of security and comfort that they had grown up used to. Karl Barth, who told that story a long time before I did, describes opening this book as gazing through a warehouse window, wiping the grime off of the world that we tend to build for ourselves. To read the Bible is to be drawn into another reality. It is to participate with God on his terms, uh, not the other way around. Bart writes this, this is what happens when we open the Bible. 
we enter the totally unfamiliar world of God, a world of creation and salvation stretching endlessly above and beyond us. Life in the warehouse never prepared us for anything like this. You see, with all of our unique stories and the range of experiences and histories with the Bible that there would be in a room like this one, here's the common ground that we all share. We all want to enter God's world but remain in control. And the moral of Bart's story is that option isn't available to us. We cannot see the heavens above from the confines of the warehouse. To discover another reality is to risk the surrendering of control that I've grown used to. You cannot drag God into the warehouse. All you can do is elbow out the glass and crawl out. At its most basic level, the Bible is a collection of stories of people who share this in common. They climbed out of the warehouse. They left their world at the invitation of God into his. Read the Bible cover to cover. The common thread is awe. The glue that holds this book together is awe. Before there were theological dictionaries and various interpretations, before there was a council to organize this whole thing into a coherent whole, before Wycliffe's translation or London's Houses of Parliament, before this book was offered to you as a beautiful invitation or was weaponized against you to manipulate or was just a complete mystery to you altogether, before any of that, there were ordinary people experiencing an extraordinary God left dizzy with awestruck wonder. I don't know if this has ever occurred to you or not. But the first people to ever read the Bible weren't immediately aware that they were reading the Bible. Right? They just thought they were listening to the stories of their ancestors, Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Aaron, Isaiah and Esther. Or they thought they were reading scraps of some of Jesus' old sermons or a letter from that apostle again. They were awestruck people reading the stories of similarly awestruck people. In the words of Johannes Hartzell, awe is the beginning of Christianity. In the beginning, there was no institution. There were no rules and not even any fixed teaching. In the beginning, there was an encounter, such a disturbing encounter that it took the newborn church centuries of rubbing its amazed eyes to tru truly realize what had happened to it. The Bible is a window before it's anything else, and awe is the binding that holds the pages together. Regardless of what's gotten stuck to it over the years for you, I want you to know the scripture as it was penned by its original authors. I want you to know what you're holding when you hold this book. I want you to know the power that these stories have had in the lives of the people that held them first and the power that they still have in our hands today. It's a window in a warehouse inviting you to climb out and discover a more expansive world than the one you've grown accustomed to, maybe even the one that you're growing increasingly content to settle for. One question, what am I holding when I'm holding the Bible? A window, but also a library. Because the Bible isn't just one book, it's a small library of books that all originate in the history of ancient Israel. It's a collaboration of a whole lot of different authors that is broken down into two distinct parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Hebrew Bible, or what most Western Christians tend to call the Old Testament in Hebrew, is named the Tanakh. T meaning Torah, that's the law, the first five books. In Nevi'im, or the prophets, which are interpreting Israel's past and present in light of God's future promises. 
And then there's K, the, the Ketuvim, or the writings. These are poetic books of prayer and poetry and songs and wisdom that the Israelites used to form their worship. And that's where the Hebrew Bible stops. And the trouble with stopping there is that this is a building and building story that's missing an ending. Uh, the story is building and building toward resurrection, and then Second Chronicles ends with an incomplete sentence. Actually, an incomplete sentence, if you read it in Hebrew, it's like a gripping film that just cuts off mid-dialogue in the climactic scene. But it's no accident, it's no error. It's a subtle nod to the reality that the Hebrew Bible points forward to a story with a promised ending. The New Testament, which was written and compiled later, offers that ending. A self-proclaimed prophet named Jesus shows up calling himself the fulfillment or the embodiment of the Tanakh. Uh, he built a following big enough around that provocative claim to get him killed, but of course, 72 hours after his death, no one can find his body. The followers knew him personally who witnessed not just his teachings, but who knew his life up close. They were named the apostles, and what we call the New Testament was first known as the writings of the apostles, which also has three parts. The Gospels, which are the four historically reputable biographies of Jesus' life. And then there's Acts, that's the history book of the early church. And then the letters, which were written to communities or churches, popping up all throughout the Greco-Roman world. And throughout church history, through periods of beauty and revival and through periods of mess and scandal and corruption, historically, believers have recognized the Tanakh and the apostolic writings, or the Old Testament and the New Testament, as God-breathed in the language of 2 Timothy, as scripture that was inspired by the Spirit of God himself. And like any other library, the Bible is made up of various forms of literature representing various ways of engaging that literature. Now that's really, really important because based on the genre of literature you're engaging, you come with a different set of expectations and a different method of engagement. For example, lately I've been falling asleep reading Facing the Mountain by Daniel James Brown which is the narrative history of the Japanese-American experience post-Pearl Harbor in the World War II era. I'm not necessarily recommending it. I'm like right in the middle of it, but so far, it is difficult to put down. On the other hand, my son Simon typically likes to go to bed reading Fancy Nancy, <laughs> a book that I have read a number of times at varying speeds for reasons that parents will be familiar with. To be completely honest, I'm just excited to be done with the Gruffalo. I mean, I had a long and intimate relationship with the Gruffalo, and I know Amos is gonna get there at some point, but I needed a break, because I was reciting that thing from memory. I wasn't even looking at the pages anymore. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to make. If I open either one of these books, if I'm, if I'm reading Facing the Mountain or I'm reading Fancy Nancy, I'm doing the same activity, I'm reading. But the expectations I bring to each one of these books and the way that I interact with the material is vastly different based on which one I'm reading. And that's something you instinctively do all the time. You read a textbook with a certain set of expectations. You're there to learn and to understand. But you read a poem with an entirely different set of expectations. You're there to imagine and see and be moved. And you read a New York Times article with a still different set of expectations. This is one person distilling information of true events to inform others. And the Bible is 43% narrative, meaning story. 
like the Exodus and the Gospels and Acts, uh, where we go to listen and understand and gain context. But the Bible's also 33% poetry, like the Psalms, Proverbs, and much of the prophets, which we contemplate and are moved imaginatively. And, and then it's 24% discourse, like the law and the letters, which are real life events being distilled and applied through an author. So when you flip through the pages of the Bible, you're walking through a library and you need to know which type of book you're picking up in order to bring the right set of expectations and the right interaction with the material. And these various literary forms, they, they account for the whole person. You see, the Bible is not exclusively an intellectual read, it's a human read. Meaning it engages the whole person, it dignifies the mind, the will, the emotions, and the body, all of us. The literary forms in Scripture, I believe, serve as an invitation to experience with the life of Scripture. Because you can read the exact same information as a letter, a narrative, and a poem, and each one is going to have a different effect on you, though they contain the same information. My grandmother wrote me a birthday card, handwritten every year until I was about 25. I've got from her a collection of letters. And also, over the course of my years, I've gotten to hear about hers through snippets. I've heard her narrative of her life. And I also remember once being at this open mic poetry slam when this guy uh, performed an original poem that uh, was all about his grandmother, entirely symbolized by the veins and wrinkles on the tops of her hands. And I wept in the back row of that place over gratitude for my own grandmother's life. So why do letters and a story and a poem all affect me differently, though they're all about the same person, the same information? Because each type of communication invites me to enter the same story in a different way. One delivers information, another explains information, and still another allows me to feel the weight of that information. And the Bible is written that way. It's like a warehouse window. It's an invitation to peer into another reality, to imagine it, to enter it, to feel the weight of it, to be informed about the truth of it until you live in it. So here's the Bible. It's a window, it's a library, and it's a meal. When is the first time in the Bible we read anything about the writing of the Bible? Do you know? Some of you do. <laughs> Aaron knows. Aaron is nodding at me. Um, it's in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. So you get through roughly 70 chapters of this thing, what was later broken into 70 chapters of this thing, before the Bible says anything about the writing of the Bible. Uh, and then God miraculously delivers Israel from the Amalekite army and says, hey, Moses, you probably want to grab a pen. So why did God tell Moses to write this down? What's well, right there in the text as something to be remembered. Remember what I'm doing, Moses. Mark this down so that you can pass it along to the people groups and generations and eras that will follow you. However broad and far human history stretches, remembering this will be essential for remembering your meaning and purpose. Remembering this is going to be essential for remembering the plot that your story falls within. But what about all the other stuff before Exodus 17, like those 70-ish chapters that you just referenced? How are we supposed to remember that part? 
Well, before God ever told Moses to grab a pen, he had given Israel a covenant. And a covenant is like a promise, but it's stronger. It's more like what we would describe as a contract today. Only it's different than any other contract that's ever been written because contracts are all about managing risk, right? There's a a certain amount of risk taken by each party to receive a certain amount of potential reward by each party. But the covenant that God forges with the people of Israel is one where he takes on all of the risk and Israel receives all of the reward. And the way that God seals that covenant is an incredibly fun story uh, that we just do not have time for. But in a world before there was lawyers and signing documents on the dotted line, there was a formal way to seal or to cut a covenant. And God walks Abraham through that process. Now, why on earth is God going through the formality of signing the covenant? He's God. Just make the promise and then move on. Because it's to be remembered. And so we need an experience to mark the moment, to inhabit, to remember it, to put it down, and to pass it on. And after the covenant comes this meal. It's called Passover. God says, hey, gather your friends and family together on this day to remember this meal and celebrate this story. God planned the world's first holiday as an invitation to remember. And then after that, after a covenant and a meal to remember, God says, all right, Mo, write this down. Because all that you're experiencing right now It's the outworking of my covenant. It's all the years of marriage after that day that you made the vows. See, there's this particular day when two people will make promises to each other, public promises in front of anyone who might come and witness, but then there's a whole life of working out those promises, right, through fun and through hardship, through expectations met and through unexpected tragedy, through memorable experiences and ordinary days. There's this one phenomenal Saturday followed by a whole bunch of ordinary days. And when we read the Hebrew Bible, we're mostly reading the whole bunch of ordinary days, the outworking of the promise that God makes near the very beginning of the story. And the whole thing ends with the bunch of prophets making future promises. The story's not over. This isn't the end. The covenant gets better than this. Here's one example, Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So here is the pattern of Hebrew scripture, my friends. Covenant, meal, writings, promise. And that brings us to Jesus. The New Testament begins when Jesus showed up pulling the unfinished story forward, claiming to be the fulfillment to the prophet's promises, to be the revelation of God's faithfulness. Jesus is picking up on that original contract that God drew up, and he's revealing that the way that God keeps his promises is far better than anyone had dared to imagine it. And this is what the New Testament authors call the New Covenant. Speaking of his own looming death, Jesus himself said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Hebrews chapter seven, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant, a covenant Jesus revealed to have grace as its very foundation. In the words of David Benner, the psychologist, everything within us tells us that the universe must be organized according to a principle wherein we get what we deserve. But quite unbelievably, God is not simply the projection of our own image on the cosmos. He is different from anything we could have ever imagined. 
He offers us something we could never deserve, forgiveness of our sins and his embrace of love. Now, how is anyone going to remember on all the days after the covenant, the ordinary Tuesdays after the extraordinary Saturday, how's anyone going to remember something different than we ever could have imagined? Well, on the final night of his life, Jesus sat down at a table on Passover. That should sound familiar. It was that first meal to remember that first covenant. And he gave a new meal to remember what we call a new covenant. Bread representing his body, wine representing his blood. And he said what? Eat and drink in remembrance of me. Now about this time, the apostles, I imagine, are picking up on the pattern. He's retelling the story, covenant, meal. We'd better grab a pen and start writing this down. And that's how the New Testament came to be. Jesus promised a new covenant. He told us to remember it with a meal. He called himself the completion of the writings. And after his resurrection, he made a promise. I will return to completed redemption. A day in the future is coming when I will plainly reveal myself as king. Now that pattern should sound familiar. The pattern of the Hebrew Bible is followed by the pattern of the apostolic writings. And not to get ahead of myself, but this whole story, the end of this collection of ancient scrolls is reimagined as a meal to be eaten. This is what Jesus was doing when he said, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. He's saying the whole story is on a plate and it's poured into a glass. The meal and the writings are one in the same revelation. They're telling the same story, revealing the same covenant. That's what you're holding when you're holding the Bible, a meal. And meals are not served to be admired. No one reads a menu just to gain information about what could be. We read a menu to gain information about what I will consume, what I will ingest, what I will convert into energy and turn into life. And we enter the Bible for the same reason, not just to gain information, but to consume, to convert into energy and to turn into life, the story on the page. One question, what am I holding when I'm holding the Bible? You're also holding a biography. You know, one of the things that sets human beings apart from the rest of creation is that we tell stories. We weave events into coherent narratives in our own imaginations that make sense of the story of our lives and make sense of our lives within the broader story of the world. In fact, throughout human history, we've never found a culture, tribe, or people group that hasn't told stories. And throughout all of human history, we've never been able to find another type of creature that does tell stories. To return to the warehouse again, the invitation isn't just to see or perceive another world. It's to live in it. It's to climb out of the warehouse window, to climb out of the illusion of my control and join the broader story. Dallas Willard is getting at that same sentiment when he writes, the teachings of the Bible, no matter how thoroughly studied and firmly believed, can never by themselves constitute our personal walk with God. They have to be applied to us as individuals and to our individualized circumstance, or they remain no part of our lives. The right information found in scripture, it matters profoundly for who you become. But the information found in scripture does not dictate who you become. And that's why Christians with 
the information can be some of the best people that you've ever met. And Christians with that same set of information can be some of the worst people that you have ever met. (laughs) Because information doesn't change us. Even right information doesn't change us. Love changes us. And love is so much more personal than information. And so is the Bible. It's a whole lot more personal than information. Here's the surprising claim, hidden on page after page of the ancient story. You are a word God spoke. Creation has this pattern. God spoke and there was, right? God spoke and then light was torn from dark. God spoke and then vegetation broke new soil. God spoke and then animals of every kind are teeming. There's flocks of birds over Alaska. There's stampedes running through the Amazon. God spoke and then you came kicking and screaming out into a crowded hospital room. Ephesians chapter one, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us. The English translation of this word chose is the Greek root word lego, meaning to speak. He spoke us before the creation of the world. Most people use this verse and this passage as a whole to argue about the bounds of free will, and that is to miss the stunning claim that you are here because God spoke you, spoke you when there was nothing else at all, against a pitch black canvas before God had torn light from dark or caused vegetation to break any kind of soil or there was uh, animals teeming with life anywhere. You were a thought in his mind and a word on his lips. The Bible properly understood is more memoir than it is philosophical theory. At the most personal level, what you're holding when you're holding the Bible is a biography. It is the true story of my life and yours and an invitation to come alive in the story where we were always made to live. This book started with experience, with a bunch of ordinary people experiencing an extraordinary, with God, an extraordinary God left dizzy in awestruck wonder. And this book is an invitation to experience to become an ordinary person encountering an extraordinary God left dizzy with that same awestruck wonder. That's what happens when we discover what we're reading, when you find yourself in the most ancient story. Mary Carr is one of my favorite writers. She's the author of a trilogy of memoirs, her first and most popular. It's called The Liar's Club, and it's a description of her childhood abuse at the hands of an alcoholic mother It is unapologetically graphic and devastating and difficult to read. Her most recent is called Lit, and it is the true story of how she accidentally became an alcoholic mother, the very person she promised herself she'd never be. And I wanna read you a small snippet from that part of her story, but first let me give you a little bit of context, because by the time we get to the chapter that I'm gonna read from, she's found sobriety through AA, and her sponsor encourages her to begin reading the Bible. Oh, come on. I mean, I need sobriety and prayer I'm beginning to come around on so long as it's on my terms, but pretending that some ancient set of scrolls that is fraught with tribal warfare is supposed to somehow be the key that fits the lock of my complex inner world, no thanks. Her response was something along those lines. And not long after, she was going to visit her mom who is now elderly but still living, which was going to be an environment full of triggers for her. 
And so her sponsor folds up a piece of paper with two Bible passages written on it. Psalm 51, verses seven through 12 for forgiveness, and James chapter one, verses one through 13 for temptation. And said, I'm praying these words over you as you go. I know you're completely out on the Bible, but I wrote them down just thinking that you might need them at some point while you're there. So she's in her mom's apartment and her elderly mother's just kind of chipping away at her the way she's always done, these little critical comments. And eventually the space between the two of them wears so thin and there are all the pain and wounds that have built up over decades between them spills out of Mary and she screams things that she cannot take back and decades of pain just comes spilling out of her and when the blur of her anger kind of fades and she begins to refocus, she's there in the living room she grew up up in, looking at her mother, an elderly woman, long set in her ways, and carrying her own stories of pain, and finally saying all of that, all the things that she's pressed down and bottled up for so many years, finally letting all of that out, has not made the space between the two of them any more bearable. And so that night, Mary's alone in that living room, long after her mom's gone to bed, she can't sleep haunted by regret, unable to stop the anxious wheels of her imagination turning, unable to stop re-seeing the scene of what had happened that evening in her mind. And so somewhere around 1 a.m., she's rummaging through an old box of childhood things of her mother's, just trying to pass the time, and she happens to find her mom's childhood Bible. And she grimaces, thinking of her sponsor, about how she's gonna have to relive this moment to someone else, about how she's gonna have to show herself in a moment that she never even wanted to see herself to someone else. And she just casually begins to flip through the pages and as she does, she notices these two flashes of color go by. And interested, she begins to flip back and there it is, underlined in blue crayon, Psalm 51, verses seven through 12. And then she flips ahead to find the next one. James chapter one, verses one through 13, highlighted. An entire Bible of her mother's, completely unmarked, except for these two passages, the exact same two references her sponsor had written down for her, still folded up on a sheet of notebook paper in her back pocket. These are Mary's words. This is not the parting of the Red Sea, this is not a dead friend arisen from his gauze windings and peering out of the stone tomb at, or stilling the waves about to up in my boat. This is not the healing of a leper, not a bullet hole entering through the front of my helmet and exiting out the rear without touching the head that wore it. As miracles go, it might not even seem like one, but it feels as if God once guided my mother's small hand circa 1920-something to make two notes I very much need to find 70 years later, a message that I could be made new that I am, have always been loved. It was love, not information. Love, the only thing powerful enough to make us new. Something entirely unexpected that night. She found herself in the ancient story, the one she had resisted, the one she was avoiding. She realized that she too is a, is a word God spoke 
that somewhere, somehow, against a pitch black canvas, before God had cut light from dark, before there was any vegetation, before there was any animal, she was a thought on the mind of the eternally loving creator and a word on his lips. And where did that leave her? Awestruck. Back to Mary's words. Mock that experience as random chance if you like, but from then on I start to arrive in the present as never before, standing up in it, as if pushed from behind like a wave, for it feels as if I was made from all the possible shapes a human might take, not to prove myself worthy, but to refine the worth I'm formed from, acknowledge it, own it, spend it on others. Look, the Bible's not a religious encyclopedia. It's not an outdated philosophical theory. It's not an old dusty rule book you unfortunately have to put up with in order to get along with the spiritual experience that you came for. It is a biography. Mine, and yours, and yours, and yours, and yours, and yours. The invitation of this living and active book is new life formed from unconditional love. So as our practice for the week ahead, I wanna introduce you to bread. It's an annual Bible reading plan that we've put together in partnership with a number of our, or a couple of our sister churches, uh, KXC in England and Reality SF down in San Francisco. Together, we have crafted this daily guide to reading and praying scripture to empower and equip you to tune your ear to God's voice through his written word. And there's a few cool things that I want you to know about that exist within this thing. First, the recommended daily scripture readings that you'll find in here have been carefully selected to follow along with the global church calendar. That means that you'll be reading about the birth of Christ during the season of Advent and reading about his suffering and death during the season of Lent. And at this time of year, everything will be pointing ahead to the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a really complicated way of saying if you read along with bread, you'll be thematically in the same part of the story, the same part of the life of Jesus as we're focused on as a church at that same time. Second thing is that this is more than just a what to read plan, it's also a how to read plan. Uh, bread is an acronym, be still, read, encounter, apply, and devote. And I'm gonna explain that a whole lot more in depth next week, but for today, what you should know is that that acronym is based on the ancient way of praying and reading scripture known as Lectio Divina, a method of interacting with God's written word that we trace all the way back to the earliest centuries of the movement of Jesus, which is based on reading smaller portions of scripture more slowly and prayerfully, uh, trying to hear God speak to me through his word. And one final but important note on this. If you are already in the habit of reading scripture and praying daily and you're just feasting, I mean, encountering God through the word, hearing his voice speak to you, living in response to it as you go into your day, then by all means, do not let me interrupt you. This is not an obligation to change what you're already doing and get on board with this plan or something. It is an invitation. Uh, an, an honest gift of love that our pastors have worked together to offer to you, that our whole staff has worked together to offer to you to begin to train and tune your ear to God's voice through his written word. And I would just say to you, if what you're currently experiencing is anything less than a feast, then give this a shot. 
Because I imagine that there might be a few breadcrumbs that you, ooh, pun, not intended. <laughs> you see where I'm going with that train of thought. Now look, as of today, bread is for sale at all of our Bridgetown worship gatherings. It costs 15 bucks, uh, which is the price of printing it. We're not trying to turn a profit on this thing. We're never gonna try to turn a profit on this thing. We're just trying to pay for some paper and ink. So if, and by the way, if the 15 bucks is prohibitive to you, we'll just give it to you. Um, But that's simply what we're trying to do. And no, we're not releasing a digital copy because we've designed the whole thing so that you'll step away from your screens and peer through the warehouse window. Um, And secondly, because it's designed with a space to journal prayers in response to this B-R-E-A-D acronym. That's going to make a whole lot more sense when it's in your hands, which, bad news coming here, we sold out at 9 a.m. I know, really undershot the order. Sorry I didn't lead the infomercial with that information. However, we'll have plenty of these next week and would love for you to join along with us. And next week, we're going to get all into those how questions. So it's honestly the perfect time for you to begin. So let this be simply an announcement for you to break open that piggy bank and come prepared next week. Um, I am committed to making this my daily reading plan over the next year. And I simply want to say, anyone that wants to come with me, come on, let's do this together. Now, I wanna land here for today. People have always had a whole lot of trouble finding themselves in that place that Mary was, somewhere around one in the morning on her mother's living room floor broken enough to hear God speak to them, turning their brokenness into awestruck wonder. So finally, what am I holding when I'm holding the Bible? A person. John chapter one, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, the stunning claim on the first page of John's gospel is this, that you and I are tragically and regrettably, or we have tragically and regrettably chosen a different world to live in than the one that God created us for. And so he took on our form and climbed down into ours. That Jesus wrapped this ancient story in flesh and came and lived among us. He does not only invite us to climb out of the warehouse, he tears the roof off of the warehouse and climbs down and lives among us that we might recognize him and go with him. And there's an even more uh, incredible claim at the end of John's gospel than the one at the beginning. It's that you and I can become fully alive in this fallen world. That we can go on living in a broken, corrupted, darkened kind of place, the kind of life that never ends. Uh, That the word became flesh, yes, and the word becomes your flesh and mine. Near the very end of the story that began with you as a word on the lips of the creator, we read, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. The instruction, to borrow a phrase, is eat this book. Get this ancient story into your system till you become a living word, an imperfect, grace-filled, increasingly redeemed, unique version of the same old redemption story playing out before the eyes of a fallen world. Don't just study this book. Don't only read this book. Eat it. Internalize it. Become it. A living picture of the promised future in the messy present. That was God's invitation when he folded a library of awestruck encounters into a single book. And it still is. So how? 
How do I not just read the words on this page, but how do I consume it, internalize it, and become it? How do I read the Bible? That's next week. For today, I think hunger is probably more than enough. <laughs>